0: Father God, we come to you now not just asking you to be our teacher, but really crying out to you, Father. Many of us have been praying for eyes to see and understand and hearts to care about things that are happening currently in us, in people, in our nation, and even around the world. Father, we've got this COVID thing going on, and it's quite serious, and and quite disruptive on so many different levels and and there are people even dying as a result of this virus Um, we lift this up to you God and we ask you to overcome it we ask you to defeat it we ask you to do away with it we ask you to give us patience and understanding as we wrestle with it Uh, patience even with each other Uh, Father, we look around us too in our nation and see racial unrest and we see people who are hurting and people who are confused, people who are angry, uh, people who want to take advantage of this situation, it would seem, for purposes that uh, are not even good and, and, and everything in between. And so, God, we would ask you to be at work, again, giving us eyes to see and understand and hearts to care And help us, God, to be people who reach out in the name of Jesus, seeking to love our neighbor as ourselves. And where we do not do that, would you convict us of the wrong in that? Where we have opportunity to serve and love and reach out, God, would you help us to see that and seize the opportunity? We want uh, the fact that we come here to worship or we tune in to worship to be something that does change us. That does make us more like Jesus himself. We don't want this to be just a religious exercise that we do and then leave and forget. So God, in that vein, we do ask you to teach us and change us. And we ask you to work. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I've already alluded to, uh, our planet continues to spin. That's good, right? And I would have to say, so does my head (laughs) from watching what's going on, all the unrest and all the continuing protests across our nation right here in our city just uh, this past week. And I would have to say that God is at work in my heart. And for that, I'm thankful uh, he's getting me to listen to some speakers and some folks and some arguments that I probably wouldn't normally even listen to. He's getting me to take notice. He's causing and helping me to care. For that, I'm thankful. At the same time, I confess I'm frustrated and concerned trying to sort out all the mixed messages and agendas that seem to be prevalent and percolating to the surface everywhere you look, whether it's politicians or protesters or pundits what have you and I find myself uh, more and more ready to shout yeah black lives matter of course they do God's word makes that crystal clear and if we as individuals or a church or a nation are doing anything that sends a contrary message well that needs to change for sure all uh, for that all of that change uh, whether that's happening in a in a police department or in the educational system or wherever, but at the same time, while I might agree with the statement Black Lives Matter, I find myself not agreeing with much that that organization of that name stands for. I'm even confused about what that organization stands for. Um, But all of that to say this, uh, you you might agree with me that our world is in some turmoil at this moment And our world can be ugly and it can be confusing. And our world can be unfair and unjust. I think the world's always been that way since the fall. And that, of course, is because in every way and at every level, sin affects and permeates who we are and what we do. So part of what I've been praying lately over and over and over and over again and and trying to really mean it is, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is In heaven, because honestly, I believe that is the only way for restoration or for healing or for justice or really for any good and lasting thing to come. And I must also admit and confess that a part of me is tired. I am so tired of some of the things that I've been witnessing and watching. I'm so tired of COVID. I'm so tired of seeing you here separated by distance and. And uh, only a few of you, not all of us, um, infections are spiking. I get it. I, I do understand. I'm not against it. I'm just saying I'm tired. Anybody here tired? <laughs> yeah. I'm tired of the disunity that I see, even in the body of Jesus, around things that are of such secondary importance. I'm tired of all the political and ideological warfare, and I'm tired of the world in which I live. So uh, do you want to hear some good news this morning? (laughs) I hope you do. I hope you do. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do something. I I don't normally do this in a message because it's a, a guaranteed snoozer, okay? But I'm going to read a large section of Scripture, and maybe the best way for you to follow along, maybe uh, we'll have it on the screen, you can read it, so if that helps you, great. What also might help you is if you shut your eyes and try to picture this, because this is actually an image, a vision, that the Apostle John had. So that might, you might be able to picture this in your mind if you do that, which, whichever works better for you. But we're going to start reading at Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. We're going to read all that, that whole chapter, and then the first six verses of chapter 22. Uh, And I just, a heads up, here's what's coming, okay? (laughs) Here we go, word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And that that reference to a sea is actually the reference to chaos and confusion and, and sin in the world. In the ancient world, when they talked about the sea, it was a place they couldn't control. It was a place they really didn't want to go, not if they didn't have to, because bad stuff could happen out there. And that's why it says there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolatries, idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, Old Testament. There were three gates on the east and three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, New Testament believers. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it was long, some 5,500 miles uh, around this city. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick, over 200 feet. The wall was made of jasper. And the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Got that? I can't even picture that. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Actually, it's plural, multiple trees. There's actually multiple trees of life in this picture. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants The things that must soon take the place. That's the word of God. And that should get a big old, wow, man. You got to ask when you read a passage like that, uh, what is this vision all about? Uh, cubed cities coming down out of the sky, 12 gates, each one of them cut from a single pearl, walls over 200 feet thick, foundations of the walls, all made of precious stones, streets of gold, no night, not ever, rivers of living water, trees of life giving fruit. Man, what does this mean? (laughs) Well, for starters, all of this imagery is mostly about what kind of community heaven will be. Okay? It will not be boring. It will not be bland. God will be right smack dab in our midst. So much so, He will provide the light simply by reflecting His own glory for us. It will be populated with amazing, amazing people, loving, caring, serving people, people who look and act a lot like Jesus, but are from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people on earth. In other words, what makes heaven so good is who you will be with and who you will become. And of course, wise people about spiritual matters have always understood this. I don't know if you caught this or not when we read all of that passage, but in all the verses we read, all that stuff about streets of gold and gates of pearl and foundation stones that are made of precious jewels, none of those descriptions are of a place called heaven. None of it is a physical description of heaven itself. It's actually a description of the bride of the lamb, or in other words, of the church, Old Testament and New Testament church. In Revelation 21, 9, we read that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, he says, the wife of the lamb. All the descriptions given in these verses describe the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's everybody who follows Jesus, whether that was in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Uh, and instead, then, as John goes on with his vision, you know, we would expect then a description of a woman, right? A, a bride, if you will. But he doesn't really give us that. Uh, he uses a different symbol altogether. He describes the church or the bride of the Lamb as though we are a city. How interesting. How interesting. He describes us like a city, and it's important, friends, that we get this. Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 do not describe the physical appearance of heaven, per se. They describe you. They describe me. They describe the church when we've gone to be with the Lord. They describe people who will be in heaven. They describe the kind of community that we will be when we get there. Now, as we've seen throughout the study of this book, John uses some very symbolic language. Um, And uh, if you misunderstand this symbolic language, if you try to interpret this meaning in some literal or wooden sense, as opposed to uh, being symbolic, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble in a lot of weird places, as a lot of interpreters actually have done. If you miss John's use of symbolism, uh, you will actually miss what he's saying about heaven and more importantly about you about the church. Uh, You might be inclined to think that heaven will just be this over-the-top, opulent, maybe almost garish display of wealth and power, almost gaudy if you put all of those colors and all of those stones and all of those things together. But to think that would badly miss the point. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, in his chapter on hope. Uh, he's, he's writing about the fact that, you know, some people make fun of heaven. Oh, you Christians, you look forward to being in a city that, with streets of gold and gates made of pearls and, and so on and so forth. And that's not really the point. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. This is what he writes. He says, there's no need to be worried about facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps, you know. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. (laughs) All the scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, you could say, you know, trees, and you could talk about crystal clear water and precious stones, all those things, is of course a merely symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. Musical instruments, for example, are mentioned because for many people, not all, but many, music is the thing known in the present life, which most strongly suggests ecstasy and infinity. Crowns, he says, are mentioned to suggest the fact that those who are united with God in eternity share his splendor and power and joy. Gold is mentioned to suggest the timelessness of heaven. Gold does not rust and the preciousness of it. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. You get the point. John's vision of gates of pearl and streets of gold and rivers of living water and trees of life are symbolic which is quite typical, as we've seen over and over and over again, of apocalyptic literature. And all this symbolic language amazingly, amazingly describes the people of God, the community of God, um, you and me, in other words, when we're in heaven. So in this time that we have, we're going to look at some of the symbolism of this passage and we're going to consider its meaning. Does that sound good? That's a workable plan. Okay. So the first thing I want to just draw our attention to and I want us to see is that in heaven, we will be a thoroughly joy filled people. Uh, Joyful right down to the root. Okay, John says that God will do the following. He says, we'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's verse four. The old order order of things has passed away. Can I hear a hallelujah? Something. I mean, that's everything we live in now, friends, right there. All the sin, all the brokenness in us, out there, that's the old order of things. In the old order of things, things that are broken, uh, frankly, right from the start, that stuff is going to be gotten rid of. One of the first needs that a human being has is to be comforted. Why is that? Well, it's because right from the start, right from the moment you come out of the womb, stuff is broken in you and out there. Mothers and fathers of newborns begin to give comfort from the first day of a baby's life. The baby's wet. The baby's tired. The baby's thirsty. The baby's sick. The baby's hungry. The baby's in pain. The baby's uncomfortable. The baby's unsatisfied. The baby's always got some issue. Am I right? And the parents will hold the baby and dry the baby's eyes and change the baby and feed the baby and tell the baby, it's okay, honey. It's okay. Everything's going to be just fine. But then that baby grows to a certain age, and we've all reached it that are here this morning, where we know that some hurts and some things, some discomforts and some pains are not just going to be fine. Not in this lifetime. Some of you are listening or maybe here this morning with a hurt just like that. And you can read books on grief and you can join a support group and you can pray about it and you can face life full of faith, trusting in God. But there is still an ache in your heart and it may not go away, not until the day you die. The Apostle Paul makes a staggering statement about this very kind of thing the fact that there are disappointments there are pains there are aches there are things that happen in our life here and now that we can't sometimes fix so what do we do with them well look at what the apostle Paul says in Romans 8 he says I consider that our present sufferings whatever they are are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us he's talking about that future day When we go to be in heaven. And again, you got to say, wow, let that sink in. Make a list of the sufferings of this present time. It's not hard. Uh, Pandemic virus, I would put there near the top. Isolation of social distancing. I would put that near the top. Racial injustice, racial unrest, loss of loved ones. You know, during this period of time with COVID, We've had a couple people pass away, not due to COVID, but pass away. Couldn't even have a memorial service for them. So the families are on hold, just waiting. Till a day comes, somewhere down the road, we don't know when, when they can gather with others to grieve the loss of somebody they love. How about physical illness? Put that on the list of present sufferings. Physical pain, getting old. I would put that on the list. Wars. I mean, these are some of our present sufferings and they're pretty serious. They're pretty serious. So is Paul kidding? I mean, come on, Paul, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Are you kidding? And the answer is absolutely not. Paul did not write glibly about these kinds of things. Remember, Paul was beaten, Paul was stoned, Paul was shipwrecked, Paul was repeatedly imprisoned. He understood something about our present sufferings. And yet he writes, they're not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Realize that the biblical hope is not that you get a pass from this thing of suffering, Suffering in this present age, in fact, every age is just plain a reality. However, the biblical hope is that you can trust and obey God right now through the suffering, knowing that one day God Himself is going to wipe away every tear you shed. And God will comfort you like a loving father or mother comforts their young son or daughter. He'll say, It's okay. I know. I understand the suffering and the pain that you feel will be overcome by God's goodness and God's glory. God will overcome our suffering, the suffering of this world once and for all. And I don't know how exactly he's gonna do all of that and the details, I just know that he will. He will make everything right. He will make every heart whole. He'll heal every spiritual, physical, and emotional wound. He will do that. Every tear will be wiped away and you will be made thoroughly joyful as a human being. And you will be joyful for all of eternity. And that's going to happen when we get to heaven. Sound good? You know, in a room like this, there's just a few of us, uh, it's kind of sucky on the dynamic of it all. In other words, you know, you feel like you can hear yourself a little too easily, so we kind of pull back. We don't sing when we, you know, like maybe we, you should. We don't respond and so on. Well, stop it, okay? Let's pretend like there's a thousand of us here, okay? And, and, uh, and you're it, you're all I got. So you gotta help me through this thing, okay? Here's number two, point number two. A second thing that will happen in heaven is that you will be astoundingly productive. Think about this, astoundingly productive. A lot of people don't realize this about heaven. In fact, many wonder, what will we do in heaven? What's it gonna be like in heaven? I think there's even an underlying fear that some Christians have regarding heaven that it's gonna be kind of boring in heaven, you know, just boring. And because some Christians are, are kind of, thinking that. They're a little bit ambivalent when they think about going to heaven. We worry whether it's going to be like an eternal worship service. Some of you are already thinking this one's gone too long. (laughs) And you're thinking, man, we get to heaven. We're going to sing all the time. Holy cow. I mean, what's that going to be like? I mean, golly, is that going to be fun? Am I going to like it then? Because I don't like it that much now. I mean, what exactly? Well, Revelation 22, verse 5 gives us a glimpse and kind of a more holistic picture. We are going to worship in heaven. Uh, Aaron will be leading worship. It's going to be unbelievable. Okay. The singing will be fantastic. It'll be uplifting. It'll be inspiring, but we're going to be doing other stuff in heaven too. Revelation 22, five gives us a little window into this. It says, and they, that's the church, that's us. They will reign forever and ever. Reigning is work. And this is what, at least in part, we'll be doing in heaven. In fact, this is what we were actually made to do. Reign under the authority and the oversight and the reigning of God. We will reign. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, we were made to have dominion. We were made to reign, to work under the authority of God. We were made to be fruitful. We were made to subdue, to rule over the earth. In heaven, that is what we'll be doing. In heaven, we'll work, we'll subdue, we'll exercise dominion over the entire universe. With God's oversight. We'll be involved in ceaseless creative activity with God. Whoa, that sounds good. Man. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25. It's the parable of talents, right? And the master comes and the master's preparing to go away. And he calls some of his servants together, and he gives one five talents. He gives another two, gives another servant one. And uh, you you remember, he, he gives, says each one according to his ability. And then he goes away. And when he comes back, some of these servants have taken the talents and the skills and the abilities given them and they put them to good use. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That's heaven. That's heaven. Jesus is promising abundant, fruitful, productive use of all of our abilities, the talents given us when the master returns or when we go to be with him. And the point is, heaven is not going to be boring. It's not going to be boring in the least. There will be intellectual challenges to tackle that are abundant Stuff we need to figure out, stuff we need to do. There will be adventures that require courage and daring. I'm certain of it. There will be tasks that require character and opportunities for building and for engineering and for creating. There will be needs for articulate, creative, compelling communication. So there's hopefully some room for pastors. Tasks in heaven will require the use of all of our unique gifts and abilities. We'll be putting that stuff to good work. Only well, here's the deal. We'll be using all of those abilities to capacity 100%. And we'll be doing everything we do perfectly. Perfectly. Dallas Willard one of my favorite authors used to say this that in heaven he said you will know fullness of function in other words everything's working exactly the way it's supposed to work right the unending creativity involved in a cosmos-wide cooperative pursuit of a created order that continuously approaches but never reaches the limitless goodness and greatness of the triune personality of God and that's a quote you actually have to you know think about and chew on for a while but boy That is a phenomenal concept and understanding of what heaven will be like. That's what we'll be doing in heaven. And I got to tell you, I can't wait. So what do I do now? Well, I get ready for heaven. That's what I do now. I grow as much as I can. I use the gifts and skills I've got. I grow my character. I get good at loving others. I act justly. I love mercy. I walk humbly with my God. Why? Well, because heaven is coming. That's why I'm getting ready for something, something way better than where I'm at now and what I'm doing now. And that truth should inform how I live, how I work, how I do life now. Everything I do, my spiritual gifts, serving others, growing spiritually, all these things are important in our preparation for heaven. It's like everything right now is job training for the future. That's really what it is. And truth is, our greatest contributions are yet in front of us. Anything you've accomplished so far, great, good. That pleases God, that delights God. But it's nothing compared to what you're going to do. Our greatest contributions are in front of us. So in heaven, we will be thoroughly joyful, we'll be amazingly productive. Here's the third thing also uh, that we see in the symbolism of this text. We'll be morally flawless. Now, that sounds like a yawner, but it's not. Think about this with me. Anybody here have any bad habits, prejudices, callousness of heart, meism, self centeredness, disinterest in the needs of others besides the person with whom you came? <laughs> yeah, we all do, don't we? We can chuckle because we know how that, that's descriptive of us. Oh my gosh. The Apostle John says this this is the verdict. Do you want the verdict? Here's the verdict. Light, Jesus has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. He's describing us. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. John is saying that human beings prefer darkness because of our sin. And he's not kidding. And he's exactly right. Sadly, I understand about this. I understand about wanting to hide because there are things I do or things I think that are parts of who I am that I prefer nobody know anything about. Sometimes for me, the struggle for growth, for spiritual growth, for growth of character, uh, the struggle to overcome sin and the junk in me to become the man that I know God wants me to be, that he made me to be, that progress on, uh, in that journey is, is very slow. Sometimes even it feels like it's going the wrong direction. I remember many years ago when I was a younger man, thinking that by the time I was old, you know, like 65, I'm 66 now, <laughs> thinking I'd more or less have it together. You know, I'd have stuff sorted out. Most of my struggles with sin would be over, at least the big ones, right? But I'm sorry to say with increased years has come increased awareness of how much more needs to change in me. And that's a God's honest truth. Something else I've become aware of is how little ability I have to change me. But the day is coming, friends, when there will be no more darkness, not in me, not in you. John says this in this vision in Revelation 21, verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. In chapter 22, verse five, he says this, he says, there will be no more night. Night they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What's he saying? Well, you see in heaven, there will be no such thing as living in darkness. None, zero, nada. We will not hide. We'll have nothing to cover up in us. Uh, our characters will be perfected. We will be forgiven and morally pure. We will live bathed in the light and the glory of almighty God who is perfect and righteous. That's what God is talking about when he says in Revelation 21:5, I am making everything new. That means you and me being made new, being made to be who we were really supposed to be from the start. We'll I have new hearts. Hearts that care, loving hearts, forgiving hearts, hearts to serve others, hearts filled to the full, to the brim with joy. We'll have new minds and the only thoughts that will pass through them will be noble and good and true. We'll have new mouths. We'll speak only words of beauty and words of truth. No darkness there, no condescension when we speak to others, no sinful cursing, no belittling of others, no lying words, no hateful words, just helpful words will be fully known. That's the meaning of the measuring rods. Revelation 21 15. Uh, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. We've been measured. Fully and completely. The city, the bride of the Lamb is fully measured. God knows every square inch of us and our dimensions are perfect. Perfect. Nothing will be covered up. God knows everything there is to know about us. And get this, he will delight in us. We will be measured and perfect. We will be precious to him. That's the symbolism to this idea of the precious stones in the foundation and precious stones that are everywhere. What's it saying? It's saying black lives matter. It's saying red lives matter, brown lives matter, white lives matter. That's what it's saying. You see, God's great treasure in heaven is not rocks and minerals. It's people. It's you and me. It's the church. It's the bride of Jesus Christ, the bride of the lamb. Imagine. It's hard to. Your character will be pure as gold and you in all your moral perfection, you will delight him. You will be his bride. You will be his child. And no one will ever need to remind you that he loves you. That's the point of saying in 22.4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. You see his mark, his name will be upon us in heaven, reminding us always of his love, of his mercy, of his forgiveness, of his delight in us. Wow. So in heaven, we'll be thoroughly joyful, we'll be amazingly productive and we will be morally flawless. And I've got one more. Uh, Revelation 22, the first two verses. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree or trees of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." You wanna know what the food menu is in heaven? Well, we'll be drinking the water of life and we'll be eating fruit from the tree or trees of life. The idea here is complete refreshment, fulfillment, satisfaction, complete and perfect contentment and community. This is what we long for each and every one of us All day, every day, we long for complete and perfect contentment and community. This is what we were made for. Now, did you notice who benefits from all of this? In the end, it says the nations do. All the nations, all the peoples, all the tribes, all the languages, I'm sorry, yeah, all the languages that are so torn apart right now by sin, the nations will be healed. You know, in this world, We suffer with the curse of sin. We desire all kinds of things, but our desires are frustrated. And we dream, but a good bit of our dreams go unfulfilled. And so we covet and we steal and we murder and we lie and we war to get what we think we need and want. Often at the expense of someone else. This is how it's always been and will continue to be until Jesus returns or we go to be with him. We're never satisfied. We're never content. We're never fully fulfilled. Our lives are a constant battle for something. Something that we hope or something that we think will make us Happy, more money, more power, more control, more pleasure, more sex, more knowledge, more stuff, whatever it is. And we try to satisfy our appetites in all kinds of self-destructive ways. Ways not honoring to God. Ways that destroy us and community. Well, the promise of God is, verse 6, 21, 6, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost. From the spring of the water of life. Drinking from the spring of the water of life will satisfy every desire you have for intimacy, for relationship, for beauty, for significance, for truth. Only the spring of the water of life can give you what you need and what you most want. Now that spring, of course, is Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Karl Barth, who I don't quote often, but uh, he has an interesting observation here. He used one word to describe the Christian's salvation. Uh, You know, what would, what's the one word that might describe it? And, And that word that he used was fulfillment an interesting observation i think i don't know that it entirely cuts it but it's a good observation he said this he said salvation is fulfillment the supreme sufficient definitive indestructible fulfillment of our being and especially you see it includes the fulfillment of the deepest longing of every human heart and that is to know their maker That's what we long for most deeply. The greatest part of heaven will be that God is there. Bingo. John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We're gonna be in the temple. The temple's gonna be all around us. It's God Almighty. People will travel all kinds of distances to see great things. Niagara Falls, anybody been there? Oh, wow, okay, just a few of us. I've been there. Grand Canyon, anybody been in the Grand Canyon? That's inspiring. Wow, that is one huge hole. Oceans, mountains, whatever it is, these things do inspire us. And for darn good reason, they are incredible, powerful, big things. But know this, they are nothing compared to God. He spoke those things into existence with a word. John says in heaven, we will see God. We will know God. We will live directly in His midst. We will know His forgiveness, His acceptance. And because of Him, we will be who we were actually meant to be in all our glory, you see. Finally, we will be with the one for whom we were made. John's vision tells us that uh, in heaven, we'll be thoroughly joyful and we will be amazingly productive. And we will be morally flawless. And we will be completely fulfilled. Co-regents of the universe. Under the God with whom we dwell. That's our destiny. That's what's coming. That's the future. And I hope that that hope inspires and encourages you. No matter what you're going through right now. No matter what it is. Because again nothing now, no trouble whatsoever that we are experiencing compares with the glory that will be revealed in us when we are in heaven. Pray with me. Father, we're thankful for this good news. This good news buoys us up and encourages us in our current circumstances and uh, Father, as always, we as people and as a church, we, we have folks wrestling with so many different things. Some are wrestling, uh, battling cancer. Uh, some, Father, are just wrestling with poor health. Some are wrestling perhaps with having uh, been infected with the virus. Uh, some are just finding themselves in a funk, a place of difficulty, Lord, acknowledging the brokenness in them and in our world. And, and God, really, we cry out to you God, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we believe that only you can fix us and only you can fix this broken world that we live in. And and God, we would be so bold as even to ask that as you work in us, we could be agents of love, loving our neighbor as you love us. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would Use this church, Deer Creek Church, for your honor, for your glory, for your healing, for your reconciliation, to bring the message of hope and good news about Jesus to others. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.